Vernomatic Productions. Hi, this is Chris Impelitary, and you are listening to Metal Mayhem ROC with John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Walt. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, metalmayhemroc.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno. And direct from New Jersey, Metal Walt. Good evening, everybody. As always, Thursday nights, new content drops. Tonight's episode, we catch up with a guitar shredder that's been shredding since the mid-80s. His name, Chris Impalatari, and his band, Impalatari, just released a brand new anthology, three-CD set, Wake the Beast, spans their entire career. A lot of cool stuff involved with that, and Metal Walt and I had a chance to speak with him. I'll be bringing Walt on in just a second. Just want to remind you, get up to that Metal Mayhem ROC website. Do us a favor, uh, check out some of the past shows. Recently, we had uh, Canadian Metaler Sword released a comeback album called Sword 3. I spoke with Rick Hughes and Mike Plant about the whole new album, songs, all the history behind it. Metal Walt and I had a review of the Merciful Fate show a couple weeks ago in New York. Wasp and Armored Saint up in Cleveland, and Michael Sweet of Striper stopped in to talk about the band's new album, The Final Battle. So get up to the website and check those past episodes out. Do us a favor, uh, leave a review. If we read it on the air, we'll get in touch with you, send you a Metal Mayhem shirt, and sign up for our newsletter. That's our way of staying in touch with you regarding everything Metal Mayhem ROC. Breaking news as of today, Impalatari was announced they're going to be inducted in this year's Metal Hall of Fame class, joining Twisted Sisters. So, you know, we're always a step ahead when it comes to bringing you the best content and up-to-the-minute happenings in the world of metal. So, let me bring my metal brother from another mother, live from New Jersey, Metal Walt. Hey, Walt, what's going on, man? Hey, Vern. Uh, we had a really good discussion with Chris and Pelletary. I think both of us would say we're, um, you know, intrigued by his history. And he was a really spirited guy. It's a testament to a guy who's been doing it a long time. And you can see, you know, his career has just kind of gone in different pathways, maybe not very scripted, the maybe way he had seen it. And uh, But he makes the best of it. Um, I think his personal story of his inspiration of how he got into guitar playing after losing his parents uh, at a very, very young age is nothing short of a miracle and uh, has played with everybody under the sun in the metal community and have played all over the world. This was a really, really cool listen, and the guy had some great stories, and I think everybody's going to really appreciate this. You're right. The guy was a bundle of excitement. Uh... So you get with those Italians, and I can attest, you know, there's nothing like a nice Italian shredder to keep the ball rolling. I might be Italian, but I don't shred, but I don't want to try to spell his name. Is it two L's? Is it two E's? Is it two R's? It's just hard to spell. (laughs) It took me three weeks to figure out how to pronounce in Pelletari, but I'll never forget it now. So 
That's what we have tonight. Again, get up to that website, sign up for the newsletter, and um, like we always say, keep it heavy. For my co-host, Metal Walt, I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Today's guest, we have a veteran of the hard rock heavy metal scene for well over 35 years. Late September, his brand new three CD anthology, Wake the Beast, came out. Let's welcome the Metal Mayhem ROC, Chris Impalitary. Hey, Chris, how are you, buddy? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'd like to introduce you to my co-host. He goes by the name of Metal Walt from the metal capital of the East Coast, New Jersey. Hey, Chris, uh, pleasure to meet you after uh, following your career for all these decades. Wow, well, pleasure is all mine, Walt. Congratulations on the anthology, Long Time Coming. Basically, it's a collection of material spanning your career. I'm going to pass the baton over to Walt. He's excited about, uh, you know, uncovering all the jewels. Walt, the stage is yours, my friend. So, hey, Chris, before we get into uh, the new release, I want to set the record straight about you as a guitar player. You know, you've been described as everything from a super shredder to an extreme melodic guitarist and everything in between. Describe your style to us and the listeners. What exactly are you if you would have had to pin yourself as a guitar player? It's a great question, and I don't know how to answer that. You know, I, I use the instrument to express my emotions. You know, um, it really began like my, a lot of people know, at least our fans know our story, right? Kind of like it's a little bit of a tragedy. When I was nine years old, I lost my mother and father, right? And so my grandparents encouraged me to play guitar. And I found very quickly that the guitar became this instrument for me to express my emotions, the internal rage and anger and all of that stuff. And that probably came out and still does to this day through my playing. So I don't know how to categorize myself. I, I mean, people want to say I'm a shred guy. They throw me in with guys like the Ingves or the those Steve Eyes, and I love all those guys, but Impelitary has always been a band, you know? The only the only difference is, yes, it has my surname like Van Halen or whatever, but it's always been about four or five guys contributing equally. I'm just, I'm a composer, you know? I, I don't, again, like I said, I'm struggling with this to say, hey, am I this guy or that guy? I know I get thrown in with the shred people, but like I say, I've always felt like, dude, I'm just the guitar player in the band, you know? So probably a horrible answer for your question but that's the only way i can explain it not at all and actually building off of your response there um a few weeks ago john and i were catching up on one of our uh, history of heavy metal series and uh, i had just come out from uh, seeing joe satriani a few weeks ago bound in jersey and uh john said to me he said you know well if if you're a uh, not a big fan of the music is the music easily digestible if you give it a fair shake and i think in what you're describing here is yes you are a unit you're just a guitar player in a band and maybe you have a long standing career but at the end of the day it is a unit and we'll touch on a lot about that later so before we go forward i want to i want to throw a little friendly debate out there you commented on uh Ingve Momstein. So I think uh, there's a lot of online debates to say, you know, who owns the tro the uh, the trophy of being the biggest speed metal artist? Um, tell us about your little. Uh, do you know Ingve? Have you ever played on stage with him? Anything like that? No, 
I, I don't know him. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever met him. I mean, I've met so many artists and people over the years, but I, I don't recall really crossing paths with him. I don't really know much about him other than, you know, he played with Graham Bonnet, who also played in Impelitary. You know, he was in a band called Alex Raz. Um, loved the guy when he was young. I mean, I loved his playing. Big influence, you know, kind of like Van Halen affected me, Randy Rhodes. So I have nothing but the utmost respect for him. And I have to use caution when I talk about my influences. I love Vivaldi, right? The Four Seasons, the violin group concertos. I mean, Vivaldi is a huge inspiration. It comes out through my playing. But, you know, I'm also a kid from the United States. You know, I didn't grow up in continental Europe. So, you know, I had a lot of influence, especially, I mean, probably my biggest influence would probably be Eddie Van Halen on the first Van Halen record, you know? That I studied, I used to get the, the tapes of Van Halen before they ever got signed. I mean, he was on fire, and a lot of that I hear in my playing to this day. I hear that influence, right? And then, of course, people like Al Demiola, another, you know, American-born guy. So I think my playing sounds much more westernized, right? Um, I sound like a typical guitar player from the United States versus coming out of, you know, Sweden or Germany or whatever, you know? Maybe that's why I hear that difference. Do you ever have a chance to see Van Halen in those early days or possibly meet Eddie Van Halen? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I saw them. Um, I think the first time I really saw Van Halen play was, I think it was the, uh, I think it was actually the Diver Down or it was, yeah, I think it was the Diver Down tour actually. Um, and Eddie was on fire. It was brilliant. I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, the band was a little quirky when they played i remember it was a little little loose you know they were in party mode no doubt but eddie just was fantastic oh that that's know? yeah that's my favorite band and i've been with ed since the beginning first time i had a chance to see him was 81 oh yeah yeah the the pinnacle of the van halen the fair warning yeah. oh my gosh you know actually hold on so you and i got to be close in the same age because it was i think it was 1981 that i saw van halen for the first time so i didn't i didn't see them with black sabbath which were in the 78 tour yeah you know, it, it took a little while, but I think it was probably like around 81 is where I saw them live. Where, I remember it was at, uh, where'd you see I them? think it was at New Haven Coliseum in Connecticut. Okay. All right. Um, I, I don't want to geek out too much. You remember what they opened with? That will... Oh, yeah. On, absolutely. On fire. Okay. I can tell you the guitar he was playing. I can tell you he had his red and white striped high socks that he pulled up. He had his white pants on, no shirt. It was fair warning. It was a fair warning yeah, to he, he was playing. He came out with it. It was a, um, it wasn't the original Frankenstein Charvel or, or his guitar. And this one actually was painted. I think it had a uh, white, it was white with black stripes and the black circles. Yeah. That oddity one. You'll, you'll see that listeners in the unchained video, but um, that's right. That's so, right. So he's playing that, you know, they have the massive, I mean, that's, you know, it's funny. People, over the years, if you've ever seen, I mean, when we play like overseas, the big venues, right? We yeah. have a very large state set. And for years, I've always had walls of white marshals, you know? <laughs> and people used to go, where'd you get that from? Was it Blackmore or whatever? And it's like, no, it was actually trying to do what Van Halen did originally. You know, it was just all white. and The black speakers worked so well. So we incorporated that into our stage set. Many years, I mean, very early into our career. Oh, I, I could go on for hours, but I, I hijacked Walt's uh, comments. I'm going to send it back to him, but uh, long live the king, Edward. So, Chris, um, when I start going back to your origins around 86, 87, this is when the band formed. And, uh, you know, kind of what put you on the map was the EP. And I'm just curious because it uh, it jump-started your career. 
But just how did you get your name out there? That was a, a year a long time ago. Was it through, you know, tape swapping or maybe magazines like Kerrang or, or Burn? How did it get out? How did your name get out there? Well, I mean, as soon as we released the Black EP, we had some, um, we, we did it independently at first and we built a really big following in Los Angeles. You know, we were doing the, you know, like the LA Strip. We'd play like the Country Club, which is a really big venue at that time in Los Angeles. And we started to build up a really big buzz, right? A lot of people, especially in the Hollywood scene, were talking about impelitary. And so I remember we released the Black EP, immediately Kerrang! magazine, which at that time was like the biggest rock magazine globally. It was out of London. Um, they picked us up and I think they gave us like five out of five stars, like perfect review. And from there, the band established a cult following in places like Europe, um, Japan, especially. I mean, Japan really just something happened. Um, and, you know, we were also in like at that time, there were big magazines like a magazine called Circus Magazine. You know, they put me on their inside cover and we started getting a lot of positive momentum, you know, going. And all of a sudden, before we knew it, a lot of people in the metal community knew who we were. Right. And so that that was kind of like the beginning. You know, along those lines, Chris, um, you know, well, let's get into the compilation, right? The compilation, just to be clear, it covers uh, the period of the EP from 87 up to material through, I think it's uh, 2010. Now, of course, you have many albums that have come out after that, and we'll touch on some of that later on. But talk about, you know, putting together this 3D set and how you personally had to make the choices as to what should be included or not be included. Well, you know, we have after 35 years we have quite a bit of uh material we could share with the world and what we did is we basically thought about all right what are the songs that have become fan favorite staples right Ex songs that are expected of us to play live when we play i mean like you know when we do europe we'll play like some of these massive festivals where we're playing in front of 20 or thirty thousand people you know even in asia we've done headlining shows where about thirty thousand people come to see us and you know over the years you're playing in front of these audiences and you can tell as soon as I, I play that opening riff or Rob starts singing the lyric and you have like 10,000 plus kids or whatever singing every word, you know, these songs have resonated and touched them in some way. So, you know, I think over, over time, we've really been exposed to what our fans like and what they don't like. Right. And that really helped us choose this body of work. And do I have my facts correct in stating that maybe um, a lot of those early releases, you know, currently in, the, in this day and age are maybe only available through like expensive imports through Japan or the EU. Therefore, probably making this available to the fans is a nice uh, gesture for us to be able to get the best of your material easily. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea, to be honest, wasn't to reach our existing fans. I mean, for the most part, they already have our music. And I will tell you, over the years, it's it breaks my heart that they've had to pay these expensive import prices, you know, but we didn't have the legal rights until recently to release this music around, around the globe, basically outside of Japan and in places and in, in specific countries. Right. So, you know, for us now, it, it's really rewarding because now we can get this music to people that have never heard of us. Right. I mean, a lot of people think impelitary is a disease. They don't even know it's a heavy metal band. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so for us, it's 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 great. It gives us this form and this opportunity to reach these audiences that, again, they don't know anything about us and at reasonable prices, you know. Now, when you were putting this uh, compilation together, 
was there not any unreleased or bonus tracks or did you decide not to include it? Because this package uh, doesn't have any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think there were, I think, I, I think there were a few songs on this um, anthology that were released specifically in Japan. I can't remember the specific ex- songs because there's like 33 songs on this anthology. Yeah. Um, but there were a few of those. But, you know, there's another thing I want to tell people that's really important. This anthology is pure. We didn't remix the record. We didn't remaster it, which I hate because people, you know, I think from a marketing perspective, you get a lot of artists or record companies that remix or remaster albums and resell it to the public, right? As some sort of gimmick. And I'm like, dude, why would you do that? I mean, we spent a fortune making these records, getting the big production, getting everything right. There was no way in hell we were going to change this and remaster it and remix it. So this is as pure as it gets. This is all the people or the fans that have embraced our band over the years. You're hearing what they hear, right? Or what they heard the first time. Mm-hmm. You know? So we want to keep this as pure as possible. Yeah, those you, you, to expand on that point. Yeah, those remixes, like you listen to an album for 25 years, and then they come out with this deluxe remix. And it's like, ah, it's like you, you ruined it. What is, you can't yeah. erase history. You know? you know what? Thank you. Listen, if you, what I really love about our anthology, right? So it, it opens up and this is a really good thing for me to tell your listeners or, or who's ever viewing this. I can tell you honestly, within the first three songs on this anthology, if you don't like us by song three, you're never going to like us, you know? And, and the one thing I really like about it is it shows the band how we evolve. You know, it shows, um, I mean, production-wise, you can really hear it, right? Like, if you listen to Victim of the System, which is the opening track, it's really where we started to have money available to us from the big record companies, where we could go in and really spend time capturing the band live and the power and get the energy right, you know? But then you listen to something like the song Stand in Line, which kind of put us on the map globally, that song was really designed to fit in with, I mean, we did that in 87 or 88, right? But it was really, we were doing more of a tribute almost to Graham's past with bands like Rainbow. So we wanted to keep that organic, sonically, right? Sure. Not overproduced, oversampled and all of that stuff. So you hear that a lot on this record. You'll hear different periods of time, but the sonic integrity is there, you know, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Was that sequencing taken in consideration when you were packaging this are there liner notes that tell the story is it something that you could follow along yeah we didn't do it chronologically and we didn't it wasn't like all right because if we would have begun that way there's a song called lost in the rain which is the very first song we ever recorded and released which is on the impellatory black ep it's our first release um we didn't start with that mainly because people that are hearing the band for the first time we wanted to give you a little bit of everything. We wanted to give you our live performance, which Victim of the System was pretty much played live, right? So we wanted to give you that. But at the same time, a lot of people appreciate the power of our production, right? The big kick drums, the wall, wall of sound, all that, which Victim of the System has, right? So we wanted to start that way versus Lost in the Rain. I remember when we recorded that song, we were in, um, we were in Baby O Studios in Hollywood, California, we put a bunch of room mics up and literally pretty much played live as a band and captured it. And it sounds cheap to me, right? But I love it because it sounds real. It's like you're in the room or on stage with us with an iPhone recording us. I'm thinking, how cool and how real is that? But even though it's one of my favorite songs we've done, it's not something I would start the record with because the production wouldn't hold up to stuff like Victim of the System. If that makes sense. 
I have one more comment on that, and I use this term loosely. Any of this material, listening back, it's like cringeworthy. You're like, ah, we can't put that on there. Or you're like, hey, this was how it was. It's uh, This was 1985, and this is what it was. It's exactly that. It's exactly. there was. I mean, certainly there's stuff that I probably go, oh, man, I wish we would have gone back and fixed this. And I own a recording studio, so I could easily go in and fix it and remix it or whatever. But again, didn't want to do that. I figured, no, let's take the the audience on a journey historically. You know, we're going to jump from time periods, right? Because Victim of the System, which is the opening track, we did that in 1992, right? We did System X, I think, in 2002, right? Which is yeah. song two. And then we jumped The Power of Love, which goes back to the 90s. So it goes all over the place from a time period or a time perspective, but I think it works in unity, right? Cool. Well, say, Chris, on the, um, the the full body of work, victim of a system, since we're on that subject, uh, you know, my notes say there's a, a high influence of some Brian May guitar style, influence of Queen, oh, and then I see also that you played on um, a tribute album of Queen. So obviously they're uh, an inspiration to you and uh, a fan. So talk about your influence of Brian May and, and you know, the style of playing. So, so before there was Eddie Van Halen, I mean, I, I would listen to radio as a little kid, right? And in Connecticut, where I grew up, they had some really cool radio stations where they would play anything from Queen, Deep Purple to Donna Summer. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was quite an eclectic mix. And at that period of time, I really only heard the heavy stuff of Queen. Tie Your Mother Down, Sheer Heart Attack, you know, stuff like that. And it was a huge influence, especially the way Brian orchestrated his solos, right? One, three, five harmonies, um, a lot of overlayer, almost counterpoint at times. And it was a huge impact, at least on me as a guitar player. At the same time, Rob Rock, our vocalist, loved Freddie, loved the vocal harmonies, loved the orchestration. So on Victim of the System, we really showed that influence on our sleeves. As a matter of fact, when I hear those first two notes, on the song Victim of the System, I swear to God, I feel like, are we about to steal, um, what's it, uh, Stone Cold Crazy? You know, it, it's almost the same. It almost begins, you're like, are we going there, right? And I love that. I thought that was the greatest nod to, to Queen and Brian May and Freddie and those guys. Just just love those guys. That's amazing. It is a great body of work, I will say. I love that one. Hey, touching uh, on your your longstanding career with Rob Rock, I mean, he's your, he's your right-hand man, I'm sure, in and out of the band, but... You know, let, let's talk a little bit about the vocalist through the years. Graham we'll get to in a little while. So tell us about Rob. Who's Rob? And he's been in and out of the band a few times. And what does he bring to the table? So, you know, I first met Rob Rock in, um, I think it must have been 1985. I was actually loaning some of my equipment, believe it or not, to a guy named Greg Allman from the Allman Brother Band. And, and Greg was playing at this venue. And I remember I went in and I said hello to Greg. You know, and then after I was getting ready to go home, you know, so I think I was on his tour bus or whatever. And so I was getting ready to go home and I went into the venue and there was this guy who had a band called the Robert Allen Band, really popular in New England, like Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, all those places. And he was opening. And I remember I was going through the side, getting ready to leave. And I heard him saying, I was like, who is that? This guy's insane. I mean, he's screaming. He's hitting the notes like Rob Halford, you know, great stage <laughs> presence didn't hit a flat note i mean just perfect i'm like what is this guy tons of girls at the front of the stage you know at this point he's young and you know he had great you know the sex appeal thing and i remember i stayed and watched the whole show and i was just like this guy is amazing 
went backstage, met him. We talked, and three days later, we were at that same venue in the daytime rehearsing together, see if we could, you know, make something work, right? If we had music chemistry, and it instantaneously clicked. And so what I can tell you about Rob is, you know, Rob grew up actually playing drums. He was in a band with his brother, and it turned out, I guess, their singer quit. So they, they you know, Rob used to sing backgrounds. They pushed him up to the front. And from there on, he just, he stayed, you know, in that comfort zone of being a lead singer. Um, he is, uh, he's an amazing, talented human being. Um, he's definitely our, our, our writing partner. I mean, it's like when I listen to Impelitary with Rob Rock, he's 50% of the sound. You know, when he's not on the record, it's like, oh, something's missing, you know, big time. So, you know, um, as far as a person, he's also a great human being. He doesn't have LSD, which we call lead singer's disease. Oh, you sure. know, he's one of these guys where he's so humble. You know, if we're doing something in the studio, we're like, ah, that's not quite right. Let's try it. He'll do it a hundred times until we find what we're looking for vocally or lyrically. Right. So um, that's, that's kind of my explanation. Also live, the guy is incredible. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen the guy have a bad night. I mean, there, there are times where we're overseas playing, you know, and you know, he might be sick. We have the flu from traveling or whatever guy gets on stage and he still hits those high C's or whatever and you know as if it's nothing oh the rock and roll adrenaline uh the rest of the band who, who's consistently been with you and who's in the band now so James Pulley has been our bass since I think 1990 right three years after we or four years after we conceived the band James joined and he's been with us and he is such an amazing player you know he kind of reminds me of somewhere across between like geezer butler um steve smith of iron maiden to mike lanthan you know he just he he actually went to um git right musicians i'm sorry mit musicians institute so he's um he's he's trained theoretically right understands music theory can pretty much play anything i throw at him right can you play this really you know complex 30 second note triplet you know over this groove at this tempo and take some two seconds and then he's playing it before you know it. So, you know, he's one of those guys where he just he, incredible talent, but he also plays for our music because when we audition bass players, when James joined the band, we auditioned some very well-known bass players. And some of these guys were just insanely talented could do anything. Right. The problem is they did too much. You know, I was like, look, I'm already doing enough of the shred stuff in here. We need the bass player to hold the foundation, right? To complement what we're doing. If you're also shredding on your bass, this is going to give people a headache, you know? <laughs> but we probably already do that anyways, you know? Well, I, I got to ask you, not giving away names, anyone we could figure out in 1990 <laughs> who was auditioning? I'm not, I'm not going there. <laughs> but there were some amazing, well-known bass players that auditioned for the band. You, you know? know, sometimes bass players, and I don't, I don't play, I'm not a musician, I'm just a lover, a music lover. Um, the, the, a particular uh, musician in a band works for that band. And, you you know, you get them in another band, it may not work. So for you to find someone that you've, this bass player has been with you since 1990, that that's, uh, must make you uh, sleep a little better at night. Uh, what about drumming? Who's the drummer of the band? Okay, so here we become Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, right off the bat the handful so we started with a drummer with the impelitary black ep an amazing player named lonnie silva and we had him for a while 
um, we did like live shows in LA with him and he was a killer drummer. But when we did stand in line after Rob left and Graham Bonnet enters, Sony and Relativity decided, hey, let's build a, a band around me and Graham. And so we brought in a drummer named Pat Torpy, God rest his soul. And Pat was this insanely talented drummer. He had played with Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. Um, his, his big claim to fame was a band called Mr. Big, which they had a hit um, mm -hmm. with Paul Gilbert, Billy Sheen, guys like that. And um, so Pat was in it, and he did the stand-in-line record, even though in the stand-in-line music video, there's a guy named Stet Holland who had played with Wasp. Um, Stet actually didn't play on the record. It was actually Pat. So after Pat Torpy, we went, we did Japan, we did some big stuff. But at that point, he was now committed to Mr. Big. So, you know, at this point, this is where we bring in other drummers. Uh, I think the first guy we brought in was Ken Mary, who also had played with Alice Cooper and House of Lords. And um, Ken did, I think, the, the Victim of the System record with us, the Grin and Barrett record, and was a tremendous contributor to the music, right? The way he played rhythmically um he really kind of i think he really helped us achieve a certain sound that we were looking for at that time um but then when it went to tour here we go now we bring in a, a drummer named glenn sobel and a lot of people today glenn sobel plays for alice cooper now he also has a band called hollywood vampires with alice johnny depp joe perry guys like that um but glenn became the drummer for i think probably the longest sitting drummer in the in the band he was probably in the band with us for like seven or eight years multiple records multiple tours overseas um so he was the longest tenured guy um and then after glenn then we brought in um john Detty, who had played with me in a band called animetal which was me rudy sarzo and some other guys but it was really japan centric and um and john Detty had also played with slayer so he did the last two records so you know we've We've certainly been spinal tap means we've had a rotating door of drummers, <laughs> you know. So that that's kind of like the, the nucleus of the band. And uh, keyboards over the years, we've used a guy named Ed Harris Roth, amazing player, you know, jazz guy, you know, but also classically trained. So um, that's kind of the foundation, at least of the hardcore band guys outside of the singer stuff. Well, that drumming, uh, let's just call it the six degrees of Impelitari. You know, the, the drumming tree. Uh, Walt, Walt's got a few comments on that. Uh, Walt, I think you've seen like three of those guys uh, in the last two weeks, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> but it was funny. I, I was reading up, too, on your uh, the history of your band members. And, you know, uh, you also, you know, you play with Rudy Sarzo, Chuck Ray, Dave Spitz. And I think Ed Roth, if I recall, may have been in the Glenn Hughes band for a little while there, maybe 10 years ago or so. Yes, absolutely. I, I, yeah. 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 And yeah, then also I, Ed had Ed had a fusion thing about 10 years ago with Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers. They had this instrumental band they used to do, which is really cool. So, yeah. yeah. So, hey, Chris, I, I want to make sure that we um, we give Graham Bonnet some um, due time here as well, because we. Uh, oh, yeah. We, skimmed over that um you'll find this interesting john and i had uh, graham on earlier this year um and we interviewed him for his latest graham bonnet band release and uh you know we touched on mostly his new players and bands of his career you included as well um so again as you said stand in line that album that put you on the map it got you on mtv airplay and then you know it seemed like you know between uh, graham and and rob they were kind of in and out trading spots and he came back in in 2002 so you know you spoke a lot about rob now give us uh give us a little bit of graham and his inclusion in your unit 
Well, look, I, I feel like we're going to be forever indebted to Graham. I mean, he, when he came in and did the stand in line record, it was a really difficult period of my life. You know, we had started off with the impelitary black EP with Rob Rock and the buzz, everything just kind of exploded for us. And I was really young. I don't know if I was 20 or 21. And we started to um, get a lot of traction, especially in Europe and Japan. And Rob Rock basically calls a meeting and we sit down with Rob and he goes, hey, I have an offer from a producer named Dieter Dirks who works with the band The Scorpions. And he goes, I decided to go and, and do this different direction. And I'm like, we just got signed with Sony and Relativity. The bands, I mean, we have this massive cult following around the world, you know, and it's taking off and you're leaving. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I mean, 50 percent of the sound of the band just walk out the door. So I remember running into Graham Bonnet and we were friends and I ran into him and I remember, hey, what's up? And he was like, hey, how you doing? What's going on with you? And I was like, I don't know, I'm bum, singer split, you know, kind of sounds like the Van Halen story, you know, when Ed lost Dave or whatever. So it was one of those things. And, and I was like, well, how are you doing? What's going on with you? And he goes, yeah, I'm bummed. It's like just ended Alcatraz. And so we're sitting there and it's like looking at each other. And we basically said, all right, look, I need a singer. I've got signs. So let's see if we can write something together. Now, this is where it was a little bit challenging for me, because remember, if you listen for the people that don't know anything about our band, if you listen like victim of the system or lost in the rain, you kind of hear me truly being myself right it's kind of what i play naturally and it's also at on the verge at times of almost being thrash metal with melodic vocals and you know the big anthem courses and the technical guitar solos and all that stuff with graham he was a legendary singer with bands like rainbow and michael shanker group and even alcatraz to a lesser extent and I wasn't sure I could go down the road of what I did with the Impelitary Black EP, the real fast double bass stuff with Graham. So it forced me to take a completely different direction, you know, and, and we decided to do something more of a tribute to what Graham was known, his heritage, especially something like Rainbow. So the first song we wrote was Stand in Line. And I remember when that song got released, I mean, it, we ended up on MTV. They flew me to New York. All of a sudden we're on the Headbangers Ball. And it was when it was on at like nine o'clock, not, you know, one in the morning or whatever. So it was reaching like, I think it reached 25 million households. And from there, the band in Japan, I don't know what it was. The song Stand in Line or that particular record plus the Black EP, it was just, maybe it was luck. It was the right place at the right time. And in Japan, we just exploded. I mean, the first show we played was at the Tokyo Dome, which was 65,000 people, you know, so... And, and a lot of that I do attribute to Graham Bonnet because remember Graham, because Graham Bonnet had played with Richie Blackmore, he had then played with uh, Michael Schenker. He then played with, I think it was Ingve Malmsteen and then it was Steve I, and then he joins Impelitary. So I think they gave us, I always call it a get out of jail free card. It was almost like <laughs> a pass for instantaneous. You're embraced, right? Welcome. <laughs> you must be the new, the new hot shot guitar player right because of whether i was good or bad it didn't matter just i think they gave me that free pass and whatever happened it, it just we just blew up and voila you know here we are today so graham had a lot to do with at least exposing us to those other markets and giving us credibility excuse me who are you playing the tokyo D dome with 
Like just, oh, just oh, and free me. Let me clarify that too. I just realized after I said that statement, I don't want to sound arrogant. It was a festival show with um, it was Impelitary. It was Billy Joel. It was um, at the time there was a band. I think they were called the Hooters. Really big in American pop radio. Oh yeah, oh, the and, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget. The other one was um, Art Garfunkel from Simon and Garfunkel, and I'll never forget this. When we did that show. I remember we were doing a big uh, press thing, press junket, thousand, at least a thousand people in the media. And we we're at this big table and it was me, Billy Joel sitting next to me, Art Garfunkel and a few other people. And I'll never forget, Billy leaned over to me and goes, hey, you any relation to this some impelitary? And I go, no. And he goes, he goes, well, I was in a rock band when I was a kid. So afterwards we go backstage and Billy and I are hanging out and he goes, yeah, there was this bass player named something impelitary. He goes, it was horrible, right? And I'm like, well, <laughs> like no no relation to me and it was about an hour or two later i'm backstage and i was practicing and i will never forget billy and his manager came running back and i, I must have been having a good day because i was shredding and i was playing well and he goes oh my god how do you play like that he goes you got to come up on stage and play with me tonight you and graham and so um we actually got invited and they did they had us come up and play i think it was back in the ussr or something like that um and, and graham was insane but i'll never forget that show because i remember billy kind of putting down the family for whoever this bass player was right and then afterwards maybe luckily i was i was having a good day playing and you know and then he was like oh my gosh so that show was like at, at that age it was like wow that's really cool because i also love billy i mean he was a huge not not really the inspiration but i love billy joel's music you know what what year was that i think that must have been 1987 or 1988 one of those two Ah, so I didn't know you're about to say you went up on stage and shredded the Uptown Girl or something like that. But oh no, 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 no! You, you did old Beatles cover. That's cool. Hey, listen, um, it's like the uh, it's like the 16 degrees of uh, Richie Blackmore because I know Billy Joel currently has Chuck Berge from Rainbow in his band, and I think the keyboard player from Rainbow's in his band, and linked back to Graham. So uh, yeah, long well, I'll legacy. Never that. I mean, Billy definitely. I mean, look, I don't know if Billy would even remember half this stuff. It was so many years ago, but. Yeah. What I do remember, remember, I'm I'm a kid and this is new to me. I remember we were going out, we were in the clubs with all these beautiful models and you know, from all over the world, and I'm sitting with Billy, and I remember Billy's like, it's like I don't know what he said, it was like something to the effect of yeah, these models are all friends with my wife. And I didn't realize until he said it's like, Oh yeah, Christy Prinkley, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a really fun time with him, you know. And I remember um I, I think that was my first experience of Japan. You know, and, and it was crazy, too. We would come down out of our hotel rooms to go down to the lobby and the doors would open up to get in our cars. And there'd be like 2000 kids there. Just insane. You know, I wasn't used to that. You know, come here, you know, back in the States. And, you know, at, at best, we were playing maybe small theaters or whatever. But, you know, it was it was pretty wild. And speaking of speaking of uh, all that, um, what are any touring plans? And, and yes yes so we have so we're in the middle of doing it actually i'm talking to you guys i'm outside of a recording studio right now um we're actually working on the new impelitary record um it's probably going to be released middle of 2023 or somewhere closer to the summer of 2023 and at that point our intent is then go and play any of the big festivals that will have us in europe do um all of asia and then try to do as many places in the united states as possible so that's kind of the point well, you're about to say something. I interjected. Yeah, no, I, uh, Chris, I just wanted to uh, 
follow up on the uh, your Japanese fan base and for maybe to open up a little bit more about the Animetal project. It's uh, I wasn't aware of it, but when I read up on it, it's pretty fascinating. So explain to the listeners what actually the project is. Well, Animetal USA was actually constructed by Sony Music Entertainment. Sony's a big label, right? And there was a band in Japan called Animetal, which is anime and metal. And it was actually almost like a parody. And it was some pretty well-known hard rock Japanese artists that had done it initially. And it was quite successful. So Sony over the years had contemplated, what if we did this, but with a, an American band? So they hand-selected every player. They started with Rudy Sarzo because Rudy was big in anime. And Rudy's well-known from, from you know, having played with Ozzy Osbourne and Whitesnake and you know, so on. So he was first. Um, and then I think they brought in Mike Becerra, who had sang in the band Loudness for a while, who was very well-known, especially in Japan. And then they brought in Scott Travis, who still is the, the drummer of Judas Priest. And then they, they, for some reason, they chose me. And I believe also Marty um, Friedman did a lot of the um, composing of, of the original animal music that we ultimately recorded. Um, so it was constructed by them. And, you know, their idea was really to take, you know, they, I, I hate saying using the word legendary artist in Japan, but that's how they sold it to us, the artists. And basically they built it. And, um, you know, I remember when we did the first record, I didn't know what to expect, you know, and it was the same thing. First show, we did a big festival. Um, I, I, I do remember this. We played, um, it was in Tokyo. I don't remember the arena, but I remember it was 18,000 people. And the reason I remember this it was our first show. And I remember we we're thinking, oh man, we've never played together as a band, as a unit. And our first show, we're going to play in front of this really large venue. And I remember they had bands like Arch Enemy. I think White Snake and Limp Biscuit were also playing with it. And they wanted to put us really high at the top, like, like second from the headline or whatever. And whoever was managing the project at the time, they said, no, no, let's have the band open the show. And we were brilliant. That way, if we sucked, there's probably only going to be maybe a couple thousand people, right? And so we went on, and I don't know if it was 11 a.m. Or, or noon, but it was really early in the day. And I remember walking out on stage, and Rudy looked at me, and we both laughed. The place was 18,000 people packed to the rafters. Insane, you know? And so from there, we spent probably three years of our life. I used to laugh with Rudy because him and I are, you know, on planes every five seconds going back to Tokyo or Osaka or whatever. And it was wild. I mean, we were on... TV shows that would in the United States would be the equivalent to like Good Morning America, you know, nightly yeah. news. It was insane. You know, we were on stuff like that. We were doing these press tours. Um, and so we did it for about three years. And then this is where it kind of came to an end, kind of to give you a finale of this. You know, the label really thought anime is big around the world. And I thought, oh, this is going to be huge in America. And I was always going, oh, I don't think I don't think the United States audience are going to get this at all. Right. So we played here in Los Angeles, we played the Los Angeles Convention Center and we played at a big anime um, expo or convention. And I remember there were probably 100,000 people at this big anime thing. It was the wildest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it's like you'd walk around out of your hotel and there's a thousand kids with makeup, you know, and costumes on because, you know, it's like Halloween on steroids, right? And we played this venue and the venue, I think, held 5,000 people, roughly somewhere around there. And this is this is going to get where it becomes final tap. So we do sound check, <laughs> go do all the press, 
come out, and I'm thinking, I'm still thinking, there's no way this is going to be embraced in America. And I remember we walk up the ramp to get on the stage, right? We have this massive production. I would be shocked, and I mean shocked, if there were 300 people there. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was like, I, and you know, the funny thing is, I remember Rudy looking over to him and he was killing it. It was like, he was like, it was almost like he was playing his last show, just giving it everything. And so we all played like that. We had so much fun because we knew it was the end. It was yeah, like, yeah. and then then they tried to, Sony tried to pass it on to Warner Brothers. And to be honest, they paid us an obscene amount of money. So it got to the point where it got too expensive for him. And, and at that point, I was like, guys, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm going back to Impelitary. But I will always cherish it. It was so much fun doing that, especially in Japan. You know, and it was a learning experience of how Japanese composers arrange music. So that was the story for Animetal USA. Well, that's a fun story. It's an awesome story. Sorry, that was one long, really long run-on sentence. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. That was great, though. Hey, uh, uh, Chris, before we let you go, uh, it sounds like you're a native of Connecticut who lives in L.A. And, uh, you know, I'll throw a, a famous club in the New Haven area out of there. You know what I'm going to say, but Toad's Place. Is it dear to your heart? Of course. Yeah, we used to play like we used to play the was it the Agora Ballrooms, right? Which I think they had one in Hartford. I don't remember if it was New Haven, but Toad's Place is one of them as well. Yeah, of course. Is Toad's Place still around? I, I was going to ask you the same question. I'm a, I'm a North Jersey native. I've seen a couple shows up in Connecticut, up at the Bridgeport Arena in Toad's Place, but I don't know. I know I saw Black Sabbath and Motorhead there maybe 20, 25 years ago. That was probably the last time I was there. Yeah, I, it's been so many years. I mean, although that's not true. We did do um, about a year and a half before the pandemic. We were going over to play some shows in Asia. And I remember we did three, we call them like literally live rehearsals. We played someplace in New Jersey, New York, and then we did Connecticut. Connecticut was some really crazy, it was a big theater. Um, it was packed. And I remember it was like out, it was like Wizard of Oz. It was like out in the middle of somewhere in the wilderness, you know? And, and I remember going back there and it was really cool because it was like, it was a time warp. I almost felt like, well, I just went back 30 years or 20 years and everything was the same. A little bit more gray hair, but it was, yeah. it, it was kind of interesting. So that was the last time I was in Connecticut. Wow. And fact-checking, Dingbats in Clifton, New Jersey was the venue you played at that time. Yes. Because my yes. best oh friend. Oh my God, we had, we had so much fun at that. Yeah. These were, when we did them, I mean, we let everybody know they were not going to be the traditional concert. It was like, it was really a, like rehearsal for us to kind of get the bugs out and get ready for our Japan tour and Korea and all the stuff we were doing. And I think it was that place in, in you said Dingbats, right? Um, Correct. In Jersey. Was that Jersey or was that New York? No, that's Jersey. Clifton, New Jersey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I do remember having so much fun there, you know? It was actually one of those times because, you know, overseas we're pretty spoiled. We can play pretty large venues. We've never been a club band you know but i remember playing and they're going i could totally do this this is so much fun you know i mean sure you can't bring all the production right but but it was really enjoyable i gotta ask you the namesake of the show is metal mayhem roc and the roc doubles for rock and my hometown rochester new york now we have a rich metal history up here share any stories of the rock in your 35 years of Absolutely. Uh, okay so so this might depending on how old you are. So when I was in high school, I was really, I was playing clubs at 15 years old, right? I'd sneak in, open up for bands. And we were doing a lot of stuff like Van Halen and Ozzy. 
there was a really well-known band in 1980 or 81 called QT Hush. They were an ACDC tribute band, and they were massive. I mean, they were playing very, very large venues, and their guitar player quit who did Angus. And we were opening for them, and they asked me if I would do it. And so for the next year and a half, I'd have to put on the suit, and I would play in this band QT Hush doing Angus. And it was a great learning experience of how to simplify stuff, right? Learning all that ACDC material. And Rochester, the Penny Arcade. Yep, yep. We, we used to play there all the time, packed. You know, and I, I can even tell you, I think it might, well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> it was, it was, met some beautiful women there. I was just a kid, but it was, it, <laughs> it was, it was a wonderful time in, in life. So I remember, I love Rochester. I didn't like it so much in February and March. <laughs> oh, well, it's brutal. And if you're playing the arcade, you're down at the, yeah. down at the lake, at the yeah. water and, yeah. July, it's fabulous. You know, you got the water, the arcade. It's a biker club. It's, you know, that's is cool. The that you, arcade, is, is that still there? Is it still open? Unfortunately, no. No. Oh. It uh, had a couple different owners, and uh, the metal scene's still strong, but that area, now it's a dance studio for uh, young kids and stuff, so it's still artsy. But, no, the Penny Arcade, uh, I grew up there. I was going there to shows. I'm 55, so... We saw everyone there. Uh, oh, young, yeah. Young Motorhead or young Megadeth, uh, King Diamond Solo, uh, Slayer, Overkill. Yeah. Uh, Overkill, you can set your clock to Overkill coming, you know, every every 12 months with a new album. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Penny Arcade was so much fun. I love Rochester. I mean, it was just such a great environment. And it was definitely, at least at that period of time, it was a rock town. I mean, people love their rock, their metal, all of that stuff. So, I just, you know, I really cherished it. Well, you know what? We are dipping our toe in club level promoting. Just a few weeks ago, Metal Mayhem ROC promoted and brought Raven and Riot Act up to town. Who knows? Maybe next summer, and Pelletieri has the new release. We'll get you up here. Quite possibly uh, do it all over again. But, Dude, um, I, would, I would love to see every one of your smiling faces in Rochester. I think it would be yeah. awesome, man. Be like, ah, reuniting the family. <laughs> That's right. The anthology Wake the Beast came out late September. Find it everywhere. Chris, where can people get in touch with everything Impelitary related? Well, probably, I mean, I don't run it, but there's Impelitary.net. So if you can spell Impelitary, which a lot of letters, and I sincerely apologize. So Impelitary.net is the band's webpage. You can watch our music videos, and, and you can basically, you know, read about the history of the band if you have any interest in us. Um, that's it. And then, you know, the anthology, as far as I know, it's available everywhere. Although I think Target just said they're sold out. Um, yeah. Amazon, all those places. So, you know, like I've told everybody, and I'm being sincere, you know, if you listen to the first three songs of the anthology, you'll know immediately if you want to go any further, if you like us or not. You'll either love us or hate us, but, you know. Yeah, well, we'll, ha- we'll have all this up on our website. Gets a lot of traffic. I'll play some tracks on our live Monday show on Metal Devastation Radio. And oh, Metal Walt and I will will spread the word. I'll let Walt say goodbye. And Chris, thank you for your time, my friend. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Chris, it's been a, a very insightful discussion. You're a colorful guy. I very much appreciate it. And I uh, I have a suggestion. I think the next time we bring Graham Bonnet on the show to promote his next release, we're going to get in touch with you and invite you as a special guest to drop in. I would love it. Love Graham. We'll, we'll make it happen. We're uh, we're the metal whisperers. We can make shit happen. So, 
guys love it. Love what you guys are doing too. So thanks for having me on. And, you know, enjoy this sincerely. Got to do it again. Get in that studio. Uh, let's get some music out there. <laughs> awesome. Bye, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Okay, bye-bye. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.